0: All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Robert Thatcher. Dr. Thatcher received a BS degree in chemistry from the University of Oregon, go Ducks, and a PhD in biopsychology from the University of Waterloo. He's the developer of NeuroGuide software for QEEG and neurofeedback and is the author of over 200 publications, including eight books. His most recent books are The Handbook of Quantitative Electroencephalography and EEG Biofeedback, along with Z Score Neurofeedback Clinical Applications, which he co edited with Dr. Joel Lubar, who's been a previous guest on the podcast. He's currently the director of the Applied Neuroscience Research Institute and the president and CEO of Applied Neuroscience Inc. Dr. Thatcher, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you. Toby, I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So, maybe first off, just for our listeners who aren't, you know, within the field of, uh, you know, sort of EEG, QEG, neurofeedback, can you just sort of break down what? Maybe, because uh, I've, I've talked to some people and uh, brought up EEG, and neurofeedback, several times on the podcast. But can you sort of explain QEEG, what a, what a quantitative electroencephalography is?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, a good way to start is to recognize that the brain weighs about uh, three pounds and it consumes 20 to 40 percent of our blood glucose that disproportionate amount of energy goes into creating electricity. And so that electricity is what we call the EEG. And the EEG is just simply the synchronous activity of the 100 billion neurons, or a little bit more than 100 billion, uh, that uh, coordinates uh, everything we do from all of our hopes, our dreams, our projections of the future, our movements, our uh, emotions, our cognitive analytical capacities, et cetera. All of that is being done by this three pounds. Of course, it's also connected to the immune system and to our heart. Uh, So there's both uh, biofeedback of like heart rate variability and the EEG are useful. But the key here is to focus on that organ uh, now, I worked at the National Institutes of Health as a project manager for the first 128-channel EEG. That was in 1990, about 1994. And that was the first decade of the brain that George Bush I uh, created, and $2 billion went into that program. Uh, and that uh, time, we we got together as a group of us. I was also involved in... Uh, co-registration of EEG and MEG, that's magnetic, magnetic electron encephalography, with PET scans, SPECT scans, and structural MRI. This is before functional MRI came into being and also before diffusion tensor imaging, and a few other imaging methods. And as in the course of, uh, well, first of all, we came up with a coordinate system, which is called the Tower atlas Coordinate System. We had a variety of discussions because we had to have a way to. Co-register these modalities. Uh, And that coordinate system is a way to scale different sized brains and get because there's landmarks in the brain you can identify, they're called the anterior posterior commissures. These are big fiber bundles. You draw a line between them. uh, And then you divide the brain up, essentially put it in a cube so it has an upper and lower hemisphere left and right, and a coordinate of zero, comma, zero and near the hypothalamus. It's called the Descartes point. Uh, But then uh, now there's three-dimensional coordinates for all the parts of the brain that's also in for all the voxels of the MRI, all the sources of the EEG, all the changes of blood flow in the PET scan, all co-registered with the same coordinates. That became the standard in 1991. Uh, And uh, shortly, well, in 1991, we started to see that even though there's 100 billion neurons, there's a small set of clusters that get active synchronously in particular areas of the brain that have different functions, like the occipital lobes involved in vision, and right? so temporal lobes involved in auditory information processing, the motor cortex is involved in movement. So there's different parts of the brain that do different things. And they have these parts of the brain actually physically are different. They have different side of architecture. Uh, this guy copium. Broadman in 1904, around there. He did autopsy analyses of uh, human beings and monkeys. He evaluated the site of architecture of the different parts of the brain and he saw and he cataloged these different the way the neurons are actually different. Uh, the Broadman area one is called it one, is where he first saw it different from Broadman area two. Brodman area one is essentially the motor cortex. And then Brodmann two, I I can't remember it. I think it's the, the that cortex is that, the sensor cortex is next to it, and so he we went Brodmann one, two, three, and each of these areas he came up with 44 areas on the left hemisphere that have unique cytoarchitecture, and 44 on the right, and this is right at the period of Darwinianism, where structure and function were the main theme. Now. Neurology and psychiatry had not split apart at that time, uh, so he basically was a he's a neuroanatomist, neurologist uh, before neurology was a formal discipline. And uh, he confirmed that a lot of that also was in in monkeys. Uh, so even though there's hundred billion neurons, they're actually organized in 88 hubs, clusters. Those were all confirmed at NIH and PET scans. Over over 30,000 PET scan studies were done. The first decade, two billion, that's what essentially what happened. And then the second decade is another two billion. That's where the connectome was developed. Uh, we can go from three-dimensional hubs to two-dimensional maps, so it's easier to work with it. Uh, so Robin was resurrected. And so that's when we discovered the brain is actually made up of networks, networks hubs with connections. The second decade of the Human Brain Project went into the details of that connectivity. Looking at different densities, of connections, There's certain like the, the amygdala is a higher order. Part of the brain It's connected to a lot of places. The uh, anterior cingular gyrus is another part. It's part of the limbic system. It's higher order. It's connected to a lot of other places. or are not connected to a lot of other places. The temporal loaves, for example, tend to have a smaller number. So, so of got categorization of the, hi- the hierarchy of the hubs. And then you could link the dysregulation of the hubs to symptoms. Uh, you would see people without have anxiety disorders, then the anxiety network would light up in the PET scan. Uh, if you have attention disorders, you have both a dorsal and the ventral tension network, so there's different parts of the tension, then those hubs would light up in the PET scan. Um, Etc. So linking patient symptoms to dysregulation in the hubs became the main theme in the first decade. Of the human brain mapping program, and then it continued. So uh, I published two large volumes there at National Institutes of Health to help organize conferences. We brought people in all around the world. We were dealing with PET scans uh, and some later on functional MRI, spec scans, EEG, and MEG, and we are able to show it, you know, co registered everything. So that became the foundations. Now, EEG has the advantage, it's in milliseconds. Uh, PET scan takes 20 minutes. Functional MRI is 20, 30 seconds. So EEG and MEG are the only imaging methods that can really measure the time domain. How fast the different parts of the brain talk to each other? What factors determine the delays between, let's say, the occipital lobe and the frontal lobes or the parietal lobes and the frontal lobes, et cetera, uh, which basically is because everything is connected through the white matter, whose conduction velocity. So the, the greater the distance between any two hubs, then the greater the phase difference. So you can measure the time differences and the phase differences in the EEG that correspond to the underlying physiology. Also, the rise time of synapses uh, and the synaptic delays, they contribute to the phase delays. So the phase delays became very, very important because it's linked to the underlying neuroanatomy. It allowed us to then correlate structural MRI with EEG. And, and, there's, and also, and there's two categories. of structural connectivity, there's functional connectivity, and effective connectivity. There's three kinds of connectivity. Uh, to give you an analogy, the, imagine a sports stadium and a um, parking lot and a street connecting the sports stadium to the parking lot. As cars come into the, they come into the parking lot, fill it up, in a little while people start filling up the sports stadium. And then when people leave the sports stadium, a little while later the cars depart from the parking lot. That's functional connectivity. It's a correlation. Coherence is a correlation. But looking at how uh, is activity in one area changes, does it change in yet another area? How are they correlated? Cross correlations are an example of functional connectivity. Uh, various connectivity analyses like that are functional connectivity. Now, effective connectivity is where you, you know, measure. First of all, I want to emphasize structural connectivity is the street, the stadium, and the, uh, uh, the parking lot. And that's there whether people on Earth or not. Okay, it's, it's a physical structure. And it corresponds to the MRI. The MRI structural form is actually the same even when you die, you die you're die, you dead. You can measure the MRI shortly after death, and you can't see any change. It's essentially the same. Now, with time, it will deteriorate because of deterioration of the protein or the molecules. Uh, but uh, the EEG is totally different when you're dead. There is no EEG. Uh, so, Effective connectivity is the third kind of connectivity, is where you measure the number of people going from the parking lot to the sports stadium, and the number of people going from the sports stadium to the parking lot. That's effective. That's information flow, the magnitude and direction of information flow. Now, all three of these forms of connectivity are related and interdependent. Uh, So you need the structural connectivity in order for the functional connectivity to exist but you need the eeg and the co registration of the eeg with the structural mri to even know this so the eeg is extremely important i then um went to the bay pines va medical center in uh, in florida to become the project manager for uh, the department of defense program with fort where we organized four VA medical centers and three uh, active duty medical centers for active duty soldiers, Army, Navy, and Air Force. For them, that was Walter Reed, San Antonio, Texas, for Air Force, and and San Diego Boa for the Navy. And then there's four VA hospitals. So we coordinated the EEG and the MRIs and the neuropsychs that were taken for all these people with their traumatic brain injury. We also had had with a large group of normals too, uh, and uh, in the course of that, we published a variety of papers, but one we developed called uh, magnetic electroencephalography where we if we knew the what's called the T 2 relaxation time, you know the you know the details of the of the protein lipid, the structural integrity of the brain, the protein lipid molecules they have to be strictly. You know, those protein molecules have to be t- together. Uh, traumatic brain injury it, it scrambles those protein molecules up. Alzheimer's is one we first saw at the University of South Florida I was a, a, a professor. Uh, was the greater the mental uh, deterioration in Alzheimer's and dementia in general than the breakdown there was between the gray and the white matter in the MRI? Usually in MRI you'll see a peak for gray matter and you'll see a peak for white matter because they have different densities of protons. The white matter, for example, is fat in it. It's myelin. That repels water, so there's less water in the white matter. The gray matter does not have uh, fat molecules, and so you lose more water in the gray matter. But they're clearly differentiated in healthy people. But Alzheimer's now is just one uniform shape distribution. Now I have a, uh, a YouTube video on that. At some point, I can send you that information so people can see it. But what we were able to do, we looked at what's called T2 relaxation time, which is, uh, you, in the MRI, you can count the number of protons. So what you're doing, you're looking at water, you're actually looking at the number of protons. And you put your head in a big magnet, and then around your head is a, it's called a head coil. It's just a wire cage. And a pulse is delivered to the, through the wires in that wire cage uh, to essentially knock down the protons. So the protons are like tops. And when you get into the magnetic field, they're all spinning together. because is a strong magnetic field. The stronger the magnetic field, the faster they spin. And there's actually a gradient in the MRI, so the front of your head is spinning faster <laughs> than the, the back of your head or the top to the bottom. And that's how you actually get the slices in the MRI in any cases pulse is delivered through the wire it the tops are spinning like this and then they start spinning like this and the plane they go down 90 degrees and they slowly come back up if you put a glass of water in the mri machine it takes three to four seconds for the protons to come back up if you put a metal or some kind of uh structured material in the MRI, the the protons will relax back up in microseconds and nanoseconds. So the protein lipid molecule integrity determines how fast the the relaxation time comes up. So we correlated that with uh, power, uh, absolute power and relative power and with coherence and phase differences. And we confirmed two compartmental models. And we came up then eventually with a transfer function so that if you know the EEG, you can actually picture an MRI. So we got blank MRIs. And then we would color the MRIs depending upon the EEG. And if you know the MRI, then you know the EEG. So you can tell what the power of uh, beta is going to be and theta and alpha, stuff like this, just based on the structure. So there's an intimate relationship between the structural connectivity and uh, uh, functional connectivity and effective connectivity.
0: So tell me about um, kind of what NeuroGuide, tell me about NeuroGuide Applied Neurosciences, like how uh, the kind of the process of like starting the company and, and what your guys' work is as far as kind of like applying a lot of the concepts that you previously mentioned and sort of the way I see it, kind of applying it so clinicians, uh, researchers can actually measure all of this stuff at, you know, in, in real human subjects.
1: Yeah, well, that uh, started for me at, at the Bay Pines VA Medical Center in 2001. Um, that's uh, when George Bush II was elected. Uh, and he's like, you know, really, I guess in December or whenever, January 2000, not 2000, and then we took office in January 2001, we got word that uh, there's uh, efforts to, to, the Republicans also gained control over the Congress to shift money out of our program to um, some other programs that they were interested in. So myself and uh, a team of us went to Washington to testify before a subcommittee. And we presented uh, all this great stuff, MRIs, EEG, traumatic brain injury, mild, moderate, severe outcomes of a variety of kinds because they're treating and helping these people. And uh, each of us had our presentation. We are there for about 30, 40 minutes. And at the end of it, the um, chairman uh, asked Dr. Salazar, do you, do you know anything about prostate cancer? Well, he, Salazar was a neurologist, uh, worked at Walter Reed, a colonel, and he uh, knew a lot about neurology, but he didn't know anything about part, uh, prostate cancer. And he asked, Dr. Thatcher, do you know anything about prostate cancer? I said, no, I don't know anything about prostate cancer. I was young in those days. Anyways, i still don't know much <laughs> and then uh so they went down that basically that's and he said well thank you very much we really do appreciate you coming here and showing us what you've been doing and we were dumbfounded by this we went out in the hallway and looked at each other and we knew that's the end of this program these old farts or these old guys sorry about the language <laughs> they, they're interested in prostate cancer and um so, but not the brain. Uh, so I went back uh, to Florida and I then created Applied Neuroscience. I just went ahead and uh, created it, uh, registered it in case a program was terminated. And then was, in,
0: was that outcome really surprising for you to, to having presented all of that work? That must have been really surprising to not have it received.
1: I was shocked. I really was. I couldn't believe it because we were so proud of what we had done. And there's such a need to help people with traumatic brain injury. I mean, these are our soldiers and our veterans. We need to help them. I mean, that was a passion that we all shared. And uh, yeah, we were proud of what we had accomplished over uh, quite a period of time, about 10 years or something. Like that. I don't know. It was at that time, I joined them in 1994, so it didn't go. You know, seven years or so anyway um so then in in june the executive uh, person administrator at eight pines va came in at four o'clock and said she just got word that our program is terminated effective at five o'clock one hour so at one hour notice wow! and that was really disrespectful (laughs) and so i um put my resume together to uh, think about uh, getting a job, but I have a, had a daughter, a 12 year old, 11 year old daughter at that time. And um, so I, I thought, well, we got a lot of, I had over 20,000 subjects in my database at that time. And we had a lot of knowledge based upon the funding we did receive. And we, they didn't even care about our funding or anything, they just abandoned us. So we're able to retain our equipment and all of our databases and everything, and that was a considerable resource. So I just I worked it, it out with the Bay Pines VA to be able to retain, and I was the principal investigator, so I had 100% control over that. And so I kept the databases, and there were no problems or anything like that. And then began to create a, our own software to compete with existing software. And I could see that we could create a program that's superior to any of the others at that time. And um, the others were DOS-based, we were Windows-based, and I've written programs, and Carl was an excellent programmer, so uh, we designed MirrorGuide. So MirrorGuide took us until 2002, more or less somewhere in that range. We didn't make any money for a couple of years. Activated my uh, 401ks and my retirement money, and I uh, supported Dwayne North and myself and Carl uh, until we could uh, get revenues coming in and uh, pay our bills, which we did about in 2002. And uh, so today we have over 3,000 customers and uh, we're successful as a business.
0: Did you know that there was this sort of demand for the, the sort of software that you guys developed at the time that you decided to, to start NeuroGuide? Um, or, or did it just continue building into what it is today?
1: I knew there was a demand. I mean, you know, I mean, there's no doubt about that. EEG, like you said, that the brain weighs three pounds consumes 20 to 40% of the glucose. That's not trivial. And the EEG is one of the best ways to measure that. the most inexpensive, innovate, non-invasive methods. It's just a matter of perfecting it and then really getting into the, what we learned at National Institutes of Health about the brain is made up of hubs and networks. So we wanted to focus using three-dimensional imaging on these hubs and then measure how these different hubs talk to each other and how they're linked to patient symptoms. I relied upon the PET scans, like uh, all of the networks in Nurget are just PET scans and functional MRI and spec scans. It's not uh, EEG. It just happens that EEG co-registers with these imaging modalities. At the time, there wasn't a lot of uh, three-dimensional EEG. There were some. Like I said, I was a project manager for 128-channel EEG, and I oversaw the inverse solutions that were developed which is a way to measure, if you measure the EEG from the scalp surface, you can derive what the sources are on the interior of that surface. So imagine a balloon, for example, filled with saline that has a battery, or one or two batteries in it, and you have sensors on the surface. So when you turn on that battery, as you move it closer to the surface of the balloon, you'll get a big electrical potential at the surface. And as you move it away, it gets smaller. It gets smaller, one over r or one over r squared. That's been known since the 1800s in physics. And that's called the forward solution that was developed uh, in the 1800s Gauss, Poisson, Laplace. Uh, and then in 1864, Clerk Maxwell put it all together for electricity and magnetism and it became the laws of the universe, basically. So called the forward solution. Fundamental to physics. Uh, but the inverse solution is where you don't know where the battery is. All you know is the, uh, the potentials at the surface. And then you can use an inverse solution to figure out where the battery is and whether it's oriented, whether it's positive or negative, et cetera. All of that can be done by, if you do the right constraints at the surface. That was discovered by von Helmholtz in 1870. So I it's used in cardiology at the turn of the century. Uh, you have to have a, there's an infinite number of solutions, so you have to have uh, constraints, uh, various kinds of constraints that all that people test out. So at NIH we were testing all these inverse solutions. We we had uh, epileptic patients with implanted electrodes, uh, and you could stimulate from the tip of the electrodes, record EEG at the surface, and you could verify the accuracy of these inverse solutions. Uh, we discovered that um there's no way that there's there's actually there's two kinds of inverse solutions one is called the discrete that's where you take 128 channels if you want and just get three dipoles that's for epilepsy it turns out you don't need 128 channels you can do pretty well with 32 and you do get an improvement up to 64 with that uh, method the other method is called the discrete method that's where you have uh, You have a dipole in all the gray matter voxels. Uh, Roberto Pasquale Marquis used this in 1994, and he used 2,394 voxels. So so you have 2,394 little three-dimensional vectors, like this. You've got a resultant vector that comes out from the X, Y, and Z. And you can put that in the matrix, and you can solve it. It's just linear algebra. Uh, You can solve it. And you can figure out what the currents are, which the, which in vector of x, y, and z is largest, and which voxels to account for the electrical potential of the scalp surface. And that's the dis- distributed method. There's many different kinds of distributed methods. Loretta is only one. Uh, I have a book called a Handbook of Quantitative EEG and EEG about feedback. I review that, and I have a table showing all the different methods. Um, Loretta. Had some had some advantages over others, but the others were pretty good. Uh, now uh, the problem was that everybody used what's uh, called a a lead field. It's so essentially it's a, a, to in order to solve the inverse solution, you have to guess about what's conductivity inside the balloon, how much kind of resistance or conductivity changes there with the skull, the scalp. The ventricles the white matter gray matter if you can the more information you have there the better you can the more accurate your inverse solution the problem is people use the spherical head models so they should get a sphere and you shrink it around the head and uh and that works pretty good for the crown the crest up here Um, but for the temporal lobes it doesn't work very well as two or three centimeter error because the brain is actually shaped like a loaf of bread it's flat on the bottom and it's elongated it's not spherical and so at NIH uh, we used also what's called the boundary element method uh, and the finite element method uh, the boundary element method when you, when you sit down in a computer and you actually click on the boundaries of the MRI it's the real shape of the brain the realistic head model it's called it's not some abstract sphere now, when you use that, you suddenly have this improved accuracy in the universe solution. The problem in those days was that it, we have to send the data out to a supercomputer. And it takes like a day or two to come back with the solutions. And so the spherical head model was very useful. But uh, the boundary element method actually is much faster. So we, uh, so we the finite element just takes too long. So we use the boundary element method. And so that's what we use today. We use the boundary element method, which improves the accuracy. And also uh, Ernesto Soler, who's one of our employees, in uh, 2007, uh, he developed what's called the SW Loretta. So Loretta is called Low Resolution Electromagnetic Tomography. And its resolution, and even with 128 channels, you can get—you can't—you can't get less than one centimeter. Very difficult. There's a few examples, but they're very rare. Um, and also, it turns out that these broadband areas are larger than one centimeter, so you don't need less than one centimeter. They're two or three centimeters. It's large collections. You got a, a hundred billion neurons, and at any given instant of time, there'll be a a billion here in one problem in there, and five billion in another one, and another five billion over here, and two billion there, that they get synchronized for 200 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds. That's how the brain does that. It has a shout out, so who's available. It synchronizes what resource there is in these hubs. They mediate a given function, releases those uh, several billions of, of neurons, and then has another shout out, who's available. And it just keeps doing this it's called a phase shift. is a shout out and the phase lock. Locks them in to mediate a function for two and most of them. If they get locked in too long, now that autistic children have this problem, there's not enough resource the next moment of time. Or if you don't have a big enough shout out. If you get a big shout out, uh, then uh, the larger the phase shift duration, the, more, the longer the shout out, then the higher the IQ. So we publish that. So it has real functional meaning. So the resolution of the distributed solution always is less important than the uh, just general accuracy for the center of these voxels. Uh, the uh, the, at the same time, we are working it with magnetism. Now, magnetism is 1,500 times weaker than electricity. So you have to have a $2 million shoulder cage, and um, a 15-ton cage. At NIH, we would have the train schedule on the side of the shielded room. Is when the train would go by a, a, a mile away, it would create so much artifact that you couldn't measure magnetism. So that's the problem with magnetism. It's very expensive, it's very weak, very important. It's, it's different. It's at right angles to the electrical field that Maxwell discovered. In any case, if you, uh, the, but the good thing about the magnetism is this heterogeneous tissue space is invisible to magnetism. So the ventricles, the gray matter, the white matter, the blood vessels, all of that is invisible to magnetism, but not electricity. Electricity is like a resistor in a circuit. It, it, it blocks it and distorts the flow of electricity. So Ernesto found out a way to make the lead field and the balloon, the interior of the balloon, completely homogeneous just like magnetism. So now electricity and magnetism are the same, and that allows us to image the cerebellum with high accuracy. Uh, The red nucleus, the thalamus, the subthalamus, the habendula, the nucleus accumbens, these really fundamental hubs, we can now image. And that's what our uh, neuron navigator does. Uh, So we spend a lot of time perfecting that, uh, finding ways to apply that to the Parkinson's patients, let's say, or uh, drug addictions as an example. The dopaminergic uh, system, the dopamine is manufactured in this part of the brainstem called the ventral tegmentum, and then it's transported to the nucleus accumbens, which is in the striatum, it's anterior, below the cortex. And uh, then that's distributed from the nucleus accumbens to a variety of areas the you, you, you make of the nucleus accumbens in a lot of places, because it reinforces the number and size of synapses. That's what dopamine does. So it predicts a future reward, too. If there's a prediction of future reward, dopamine surges out. If there's confirmation of that reward by your actions, etc., then you'll change the size and number of synapses. Eric Kandel got a Nobel Prize. We're doing that showing that happens with biofeedback that literally is what neurofeedback does it changes the size and number of synapses however if you make an error and you screw up in your movements then the hebendula suppresses the dopamine that way you won't keep doing stupid things let's say you're looking for your toaster and it's in the cupboard you think it's in a cupboard to your left side of your sink And your prediction of a future reward starts going up as you take action to open the cover to discover that the dopamine is surging up. But lo and behold, there is no toaster. It's actually in the the other cover to the right of the sink. Well, the abenya is gonna suppress the dopamine right away so you don't keep opening up the left cover all of that. So that's how it works. But that's distorted in uh, drug addiction cases a variety of kinds, so we can image those and uh, measure those two hubs with respect to a healthy group of age-matched individuals, and we can see you know, if there's dysregulation there and begin to do neurofeedback directly on the nickel and the, the abenula, to try to restore the stability and efficiency of those hubs. That's just one example, but having the knowledge of the brain, being able to image it structurally Functional, with functional connectivity, affective connectivity, and link that to the symptoms, now you can target the parts of the organ that are not working right. That's one of the amazing things about uh, the field of biofeedback. People uh, don't really understand the organ that they're working with, anymore, or even the neurology and psychiatry. Uh, the brain is a little bit of an orphan between these two competing disciplines. Uh, but in cardiology, for example, mm-hmm. the, the cardiologist knows the heart. I mean, they, they know if the left ventricle or right auricle or the va- mitral valve or some other valve isn't working right or the conduction velocities and the uh, fibrillation, etc. They know with this and now they start working with those parts of the heart to make sure that it works right. Uh, but not the brain. Uh, when it comes down to you, put one electrode up here. You really the whole brain is being measured. You're not getting at the hubs in the network. You actually have to do three-dimensional imaging of the brain, uh, and then target those hubs link, known to be linked to the symptoms.
0: So, tell me about the the report that that NeuroGuide. Um, at least from what I've seen, you know, it gives you, it gives you a lot of information. There, there's information regarding like the the Z scores, um, sort of the standardized scores, raw data, power. I mean, there, there's so much information. Um, how do you go about, like, do you have a process, like, as far as looking at one thing first and then moving on to the next thing, or does it vary case by case, like I, I just wanted to hear your process and sort of going through all of this, all of this different data.
1: Yeah, our, the process is the same that's actually used in cardiology and a lot of medicine. You start with the patient's symptoms. Uh, it, it could be tachycardia, uh, it could be um, dizziness, and uh, you may be able to find that uh, one of the valves is leaking, et cetera, but you really wanna work with the symptoms. And so, if somebody has um, anxiety disorder, first of all, you do a careful assessment of the patient's clinical history. which things are most troublesome so there may be anxiety, attention problems, history history of attention. It could be that the attention disorder is causing the anxiety. Uh, at the soldiers at uh, Fort Temple, they they back from Afghanistan they have PTSD, so you evaluate the PTSD uh, somebody in an automobile accident they've got the characteristics of uh, traumatic brain injury now you look at the networks known to be affected by traumatic brain injury so you start with the symptoms and let's say it's ptsd as an example well we know that ptsd is related to the amygdala bilateral that's in pet scans functional MRI and anatomical studies the, the anterior cingulate gyrus The frontal lobes are supposed to regulate the amygdala, and the insula is regulating the autonomic nervous system in coordination through the limbic manifold, and it's affected also by PTSD. So we look at those known hubs, known to be related to PTSD, we say, aha, the amygdala is five standard deviations outside of normal. Singular gyrus is all right. one standard deviation. And you can see this spontaneous, because what happens, like Bert Kandel showed, if there's a life-threatening event, there'll be this sudden proliferation of synapses on the lateral surface of the amygdala. Okay. Now you're stuck with this dysregulated amygdala, so you're in a state of anxiety and stress and fear all the time. Uh, soldiers come back, they can't go to 7-Eleven or uh, wall, wall drains or they don't get, and they don't sleep very well, and they don't get along well with their spouses and their family, but for example, they target the amygdala, the insula, the anterior cingulate gyrus in the frontal lobes and reinforce them towards greater stability and efficiency. And they get in one day, sometimes two, they can start sleeping. And now they're starting to go to 7-Eleven and walk. And Walmart, and this is they give ten, uh, Loretta neurofeedback sessions it's spread over a period of time because they're still there for 90 days for the rehab, but yeah. so they give other rehabilitation too. Uh, but that's a fundamental part of their protocol. It's the scanner protocol. That's just an example. If it's anxiety, you look at the anxiety network. If it's memory, you look at the hippocampus, and you look at the memory networks, and you see, yeah, this five, six, seven. 10 standard deviations out, and so you move it towards greater stability, and you plot how well the brain is moving towards greater stability, as well as look at the severity of the symptoms. So you want the symptoms to go down along with this improvement of stability and efficiency of the brain. So that basically is procedure. You start with symptoms, you link the symptoms to the patient's brain, to dysregulation and hubs, you then have a protocol. To target those hubs to reinforce them towards the center of a healthy group of, of individuals. That's what Z scores is. Like. It's just simply a, a reference database similar to a blood test, but your blood constituents uh, it could be your hematocrits or your white blood cell count or whatever. It's being compared to a healthy reference database, these blood testers. And then oh. you, you, you do what you can to move those hematocrits in the right direction.
0: I wanted to ask you about sort of the Z-square database. Do you, do you see a need or, or do you think it would be helpful to, to ever sort of get a database of, say, like like peak performers, people with exceptional brains, um, and then be able to sort of train people towards that rather than kind of the, the standardized, just like average brain? Or like, do you see it differently than that?
1: No, I, we do. We actually have that. Uh, we take, we have a very large database of ranges in IQ with a variety of different people. They're all healthy, but we do have peak performance. So we take people with 120 IQ and higher. And we also take the, most of the, these are a variety of different people, but, but we work with uh, um, the Army at um, various Bases and they have these kernels they have these really high working and, and special ops really high quality functioning individuals both athletically and um, personally intellectually we have took top notch businessmen and we put them together as our peak performer reference and we put them in a, in a dial And we also measured all their hubs all their networks anxiety network attention network the memory network et cetera, default network. And, um, and we put them <clears throat> into a dial. So they're at one end of the dial. And wherever you come in, you'll be an arrow. And you keep reinforcing those. Each, and each of the networks is represented by a dial. and So you're moving those networks in the direction of the peak performance. So you have a target and the exceptional ones because you find that it, like in athletics, people will have tension problems. Uh, they may be peak performers in their ability to run, but when you're at the, the, the plate, or if you're a pitcher, you, you have to concentrate, you make one mistake, and the ball's over the, the right field wall, you <laughs> know, so. Um, so attention is there important. Uh, there's a lot of these components giving rise to peak performance. So it isn't just kind of, it's a a nice buzzword but it's uh, you really need to know well what is it you want to be if you're going to shoot an arrow you have problems because you're jiggling and that could be the cerebellum the parkinson's network etc so you need to kind of drill down and then move in the direction of that really peak performing group
0: right and I wanted to ask you also about when it comes to, to sort of modifying brain activity, you know, we, we, we touched on, you discussed neurofeedback a bit, what's your, your take on technologies like transcranial stimulation, um, the different types of stimulation, uh, along with like pulsed electromagnetic uh, uh, therapy? Well, those are
1: useful. Um... And, but they should be combined with neurofeedback because they don't create new synapses. They just kind of uh, create a, a temporary scrambling of the networks. Uh, it's a little bit uh, like uh, what happens in the brain, the, the loops in the brain are uh, dynamically organized with in such a way there's compensatory dynamics in the weak systems. But they're sharing information all the time to create a homeostatic outcome that's positive for the individual. And um, when you put in pulsed uh, electromagnetism or um, direct cortical stimulation (tDCS), you you disrupt that ha- the habits of the loops. Neurons get in a the habit; they go around and around and round these loops. Now suddenly, the neurons, or synapses, are getting this unusual input into them that is not physiologically like it normally is. And they then will start searching around, actually not depart, groups of them will depart from that habitual set of loops. But within an hour or so, they come right back to where they were. They're not gonna stay outside of the regular orbit unless you add dopamine or serotonin or something is gonna change the size and number of synapses in some subset of neurons. So they no longer, so they'll stay outside of that habit or they'll establish a new uh, variation of the loop and it's permanent. Uh, Dirk de Ritter gave a really great talk at uh, ISNR a few years ago or so, where he spent a lot of time, he's a neurosurgeon, uh, he worked a lot with tinnitus and he compared um pulse magnetic stimulation to D and D uh, T D C S and I think A uh, DCS uh, and then neurofeedback in tinnitus. And he found he, with pulse magnetic stimulation, he'd get a little change, he'd get a change, uh, and a smaller percentage than neurofeedback, but it would be temporary. By the next day, the the uh Tinnitus would return. And he found that with all of those uh, methods. But mere feedback, it would be months and months. In fact, even a year, he showed a year or two afterwards, but Tinnitus, these patients are still gone. But not with pulse magnetic stimulation, not with TDCS. And then he showed if you can combine the two. So you do TDCS first. And in one session, the next session, you know, it takes like 10, 20 seconds, uh, minutes. So Pulse stimulation, and then you just do neurofeedback, and he found that was a, a little bit better than just neurofeedback by itself. So, um, so they're all important, but you got to recognize that it's you don't change synapses when you stimulate the brain that way.
0: So you see, so with neurofeedback, you see the main do you, do you see the main benefit or the way that it works is by creating these these new synapses. Um, Compared to, I guess, like modifying like the electrical rhythms of the brain, I guess they're they're intertwined. Um, but ha- how do you how do you sort of see that?
1: Well, first of all, Eric Kendale got a Nobel Prize, so yeah, man. If you read the stuff he did to drill down on exactly how biofeedback changes the size and number of synapses, um, so essentially what he did he did that in the, in invertebrates. In First, uh, in the 19, I was working at Albert Einstein College of Medicine at the time as a postdoc and I went to his lectures. Uh, And uh, he was doing really great work because he would, you can actually see the molecular mechanism when cytokines would go up through tubules and neurons up to the RNA, activate the RNA DNA circuits that would create these other chemicals that were transported back and change the size and number of the synapses. So, uh, and that was well-established uh, in aplegia and other uh, invertebrates, but especially Uh, But it wasn't worthy of a Nobel Prize at that time until people started doing the same things in vertebrates, in cats, and rats, and uh, eventually humans. Uh, and when that happened, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in the year 2000. So he nailed it down. That is what it does. There is no... Now, uh, as far as the rhythms, now the rhythms are based, but first of all, a pyramidal neuron will oscillate at all rhythms without changing its synapses. You take a carameral neuron out of the brain, put it in a Petri dish, with, which people would do at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and you change the depolarization uh, the, the level of the uh, neuron. You inject currents into it, so uh, it will become more depolarized and you're, you're putting an input into the synapses, but the neuron will oscillate faster and faster and faster and faster and the more depolarized it is. But there's no actual change in the synapses. So the excitability of uh, different circuits will determine what their frequencies are. But the frequency is m- much less important than the location. So, so since all locations are going to oscillate at all frequencies, Uh, If you look at one location, let's say it's the hippocampus with somebody who has memory problems. Well, that may be uh, dysregulated in a variety of frequencies, not just one, you can't attribute it to a frequency, it's the location. And the hippocampus may not be talking to the amygdala like it should, or to the the thalamus or the medial frontal lobes like it should. Uh, So the connectivity is what the problem is between these two locations. So, independent of frequency. So, frequency is really not important. What's important is location, location, location.
0: So, my question for you: um, I, I, how how does someone go about? I mean, it seems like this is such uh, sort of a, a specialized sort of. You need so much understanding of of all of these different sort of metrics of of measuring, you know, the brain for someone going you know to neurofeedback like do you see do you see a problem with like neurofeedback practitioners not being aware of all of this stuff uh and potentially being able like to actually get, like do you think neurofeedback at times can actually make the brain worse or or is that not how you perceive it
1: well there's one person cory hammond that claims that there may be but it made people worse, and there's. But most of what he talks about is anecdotal. I was hired by um, United Healthcare as a uh, consultant, uh, and they uh, did, and, and FDA did too. They, they did a 10-20 year survey of the literature of biofeedback, looking for adverse effects. For them, an adverse effect is something that's really serious. It's not. You get somebody that's got some kind of problem comes in and after uh, biofeedback they say they have a headache so that's it, it, and then they're fine in an hour or two or for a day that's not to nia to fda or to united Healthcare. A serious adverse effect for them is where people lose limbs and they die they they have serious impediments and all kinds of things i mean throughout medicine that's really what they are concerned about anyway so uh united healthcare uh forgot that they they, they did a vast survey they had this whole, whole system looking for adverse effects and they failed to find any adverse effects the only thing they found was Corey hammond's paper and they said well that's so anecdotal it's just opinion apparently it's opinion doesn't mean anything and if there's is one paper out of thousands it, and they can't find anything they concluded there are no sufficient adverse effects the fda did too okay and as a consequence i think it was around 2009 fda said you no longer have to register have a 510k to do neurofeedback because they failed to find any adverse effects and the real question is why you think there would be adverse effects that's what they asked me is dr thatcher why do you think there aren't any adverse effects you're changing the brain. You got a Nobel Prize for the Kendall. What's going on here? My hypothesis is that essentially there's compensatory systems and there's weak systems. Okay, they're both operating together. But the compensatory systems and the overall, the overall dynamic between these hubs is homeostasis. It's to maintain efficient communication and stability in the dynamics in order to have a positive outcome, which is wired into our brains to be able to perceive. The color is blue, and when it is blue, and to be able to take action when uh, a mountain lion jumps through your window. So all of that's gotta be done. And, uh, but it does it with the help of others, so to speak. So and your frontal lobes are gonna help with the visual cortex a bit. I mean, you know, there's that sharing that's going on all the time. So the compensatory dynamics are very resistant to change. Essentially is what it is. It's the weak ones that will change and the and so if you can target the weak ones and this is common in neurology This, what you do like you, a, you do the cerebellar tests et cetera, like your left and right they look for the weak thing. Uh, you're doing your left and right hands and they've got all these tests you look for the weak aspect of the cerebellar circuits and then you treat that weak system it's the same kind of idea and you won't know if it's weak unless you look at comparison disease scores because a lot of the compensatory systems are actually just healthy they stay within one standard deviation uh, some of them will be out two or three standard deviations but if it's a network like an, if somebody has a, a, an anxiety problem you look at the anxiety network you're not going to be looking at the cerebellum network you're going to be looking at the anxiety network so right away you're you're limiting your The universe of things you're going to look at because it's linked to the symptoms. And then you'll see the hubs in there are deviant, some of them, not all of them, are deviant from normal. You you target all of them to move in the direction of Z equals zero in the center. And you'll find the weak ones will will just start moving. And then the the, uh, compensatory ones will move too towards greater stability. So all of them move in the direction of stability without adverse effects. uh, And by and it's not difficult, you just really, all you've got to know is the symptoms. And then you click, you just anxiety, okay, You click the anxiety network, and then you click go, and you start doing your feedback on the anxiety number. It's a memory problems, memory, go, now you're doing the memory network. It's, so it's you know, we teach people to do this, it's quite easy to do. The hard part is getting electrodes on, and <laughs> getting good recordings. And making sure you don't have any artifact, and you got you got recording hygiene. So you really, that's a mechanical thing. That you have got to be able to recognize what's healthy EG and what's you know what's not artifact. You don't have to worry about categorizing different kinds of artifact. And I have a I was board certified in conventional EG and my like half the exam is a, trying to distinguish an eye blink from a, an eye movement from a tongue movement versus a head movement. And you really don't care. Because you want to recognize the EEG because it's uh, much weaker, it's microvolts, whereas artifact is millivolts. So, so you just want to see what's healthy EEG. So you've got to train people to do that. And then the other great thing about EEG is it's highly reproducible because in the resting state, it's being produced by all these loops. There is a hardwired loops. And so if you take, and the literature shows this, if you do a search in the National Library of Medicine on uh, EEG and um, reliability or EEG and test-B test -test reliability, you'll find over 5,000 publications. Almost all of them show 0.9 and higher if it's artifact-free. If you take 20 seconds of EEG, it's about, and then another 20 seconds of EEG, the first 20 seconds will predict the second 20 seconds at 0.85. 40 seconds will predict another 40 seconds somewhere in the record at 0.9 and 60 seconds is 0.95, two minutes is 0.95, three minutes is 0.95 because it asymptotes roughly at 0.9, 0.98, 0.95. So if we say get at least two minutes of EEG and then test, you have test retest reliability, make sure you get above 0.9. So five minutes of EEG, you can take we have methods that take multiple one or two minute samples, and, and show that you you got the asymptote of 0.9 0.95, and that's your. And then show sure you get the same clinical interpretations no matter what you select, as long as you know it's not artifact. Um, then you'll get the same. So and you can do all that in one or two minutes. Uh, but you need to go through that step to make sure you get good quality data. Otherwise, you're wasting the your patient's time, your time. Uh, there's no reason not to do that. And also, you should never use independent components analysis. Uh, people are doing that um, at NIH. That was developed in not 19, actually, it was developed by the Russians in the 1950s to identify, um, vo- to separate voices in a room. So, if you have 10 people in a room, you may have 10 microphones around the room. You can separate out because everybody's voice is different than everybody else's. You can separate out, uh, it's called blind source separation uh, through independent components analysis. Um, but what was applied to both potentials in the 1990s, mid 1990s, was independent components analysis. Uh, in which the assumptions are, don't apply very well to EEG because the assumption is that the components are truly independent, essentially, that they're noise. But the brain parts of the brain are not independent. Every part of the brain is talking to every other part of the brain. That's just simply the way it's wired. Uh, with the evoked potentials, you don't really care about the functional connectivity or effective connectivity. Uh, so they thought maybe this is a way to get rid of artifact. It does affect the amplitude of the evoked potential, uh, but they don't. You really don't care about that uh, anyway. So um, now with EEG. Uh, MITSAR, when EEG and MITSAR started to develop, decided to use it to do artifact rejection. And it doesn't actually reject artifacts. Essentially what you do is, let's say you have 19 channels of EEG, and you got, let's say five minutes of EEG, and uh, you got 30 seconds of blinking your eyes, different parts of the record. So rather than select the artifact-free parts, what they do is they decompose the entire five minutes into 19 independent components. And they say, well, this one component seems to be loading on an eye movement. And so is this one, too. So this third one is, a, is an eye movement, too. So now you'll take uh, 16 components and recreate a 19-channel digital time series then you replace the patient's EEG without the patient's knowledge or consent, right? With this bastardized, digitized time series. It's not their EEG. And if you compare the person's real EEG to this uh, digitized uh, replacement, they don't even look like each other. It's like a different human being. And you you don't have any, the, the phase differences are all scrambled. So essentially what's going on is, you actually did not remove the artifact. You just smeared the artifact, that 30 seconds of artifact over the whole five minutes. That's literally what goes on. In order to smear it, and, not, and visually it looks pretty good, you have to scramble up the phases, get them you know, all kinds of going this way and that way and this way, and they get down to zero. Uh, and there's no coherence, there's no functional connectivity, there's no effective connectivity. And it's just simply its unnecessary to replace a person's EEG. It actually takes more time to do that because you have to identify the component. You've got to then you know, run it through. Uh, we have methods that uh, as long as you get artifact-free data, I mean, we can use that as a template to get more artifact-free data without no replacement. You just take the real digital data and just replicate it, make sure you get the same clinical conclusions. So um, we just had a paper accepted uh, in the Journal of Neurology and Neurobiology uh, showing how independent confidence analysis replacement is, uh, is just artifact. It's, it, it doesn't remove artifacts, but it actually produces artifacts.
0: Interesting. Well, Dr. Thatcher, we're, we're coming up on to the end of the show, but... Before we end, I wanted to to get your take on on where you see kind of all of this all of this research and and this whole kind of field going, because it seems like there's still a lot of divisions between, I mean, psychiatry and neurology. They're they're definitely not at all you know integrated, um, and it seems like often you know clinicians uh, you know are kind of contradict you know they're they're sort of contradicting each other so where do you, where do you where do you see all of this going Do you see they're becoming more of like an integration uh, between psychiatry and neurology with all of these different electrical recordings and analyses or how, how do you how do you see the field kind of going from here
1: well yes I do I mean uh, it, it, I'm not sure that isNR is the organization that's capable of doing that it's got its own political factions and it's it's not very scientific. And there's a, people don't want to link symptoms to the patient's brain. I mean, usually people do, but if you have a... They, they would never survive as cardiologists because you've got to link the, pe- the symptoms to the heart. Uh, and you're taught that. But people are simply not taught uh, to link symptoms to the brain, at least in the ISNR community. But there's a Society for Human Brain Mapping and Therapeutics. These are neurosurgeons, neurologists, uh, physicists, engineers, and they are—they are, they are not—they're not biased. They—they they want to link symptoms to the brain. And uh, so, actually, I'm putting together a position paper. I was writing and you told me for tomorrow's presentation to the—I'm on the board of the Human Brain Mapping Program, uh, and we're going to make this presentation to the Congress, congressional presentation, for more uh, reimbursement and to uh, make the presentation that modern neuroscience now is able to image the brain like it never could before, and it's, it's inexpensive, it, um, and it can be done remotely now with the COVID-19, you can connect up. We have one um, neuropsychologist who has 30 different uh, locations. He uh, has his patients measuring EEG, so they don't come into his office. And they can do it remotely through TeamViewer, GoToMeeting, Zoom, et cetera. And so uh, applying these new technologies to help patients that, that have uh, PTSD or uh, Parkinson's disorder or uh, anxiety disorders or balance problems or addiction problems is something that we can do if we get enlightened people, educate people uh, to kind of move off their squares and and actually try it out. So you, need, you have to have education. Uh, the science is very solid. There's over 150,000 peer-reviewed journal articles on quantitative EEG. And so uh, the, the opposition is primarily the neurologists who only believe in looking visually, looking at squiggles. They don't like using a computer. They argue it's unreliable, even though literature doesn't say that. So we have to make, I have to make the case, here's the opposition, this is what they say, I and mean, here's uh, how we handle that. And um, so anyway, there's that. Then there's uh, another. I've been asked to put together a, cur- a, a curriculum for the Carrick Institute. There are 2,000 functional medicine doctors and chiropractors. They're asking for this. They're asking to get education on quantitative EEG and EEG biofeedback. And they approached me because they know about my approach being looking at the brain, the parts of the brain that are not working right, and then trying to move them in the direction of greater health. To them, that makes common sense. As a chiropractor, that's what you do. If you have a muscle group that's not right or is imbalanced in your spine, well, you straighten it out? Uh, so, uh, it's just the history of biofeedback, where you just put one electrode up here, or you do theta-beta ratio, and and you do you know, randomized double-blind studies to try to convince drug companies, and you keep. We got there's about ten or twenty of them already, and all the drug companies say, so, "Well, give me another ten or 20 Well We'll spend another ten years until we see another ten or twenty. I'll spend a few more million, and then after ten or twenty years, well, we want ten or twenty more. You know, that's how they do because it's really I'm not sure why. It's unnecessary because 95% of medicine is not double-blind randomized control study. Anyway, uh, that burden is something that's not relevant as long as as it does get politically uh, uh, overburdened. Instead, you move patients towards greater health. When people are going towards greater health, insurance companies reimburse for it, okay? And the practitioner benefits because they get more referrals. So the key to it is getting people healthy, whatever the problem is, using inexpensive, non-invasive uh, methods, uh, and then uh, eventually through education, this will work. So uh, I, we also have put together a, a certification budget. Uh, and to, we've been asked, like I said, to get a curriculum really for both of these societies together about four or 5,000 people. ISNR is 300, 400. So, um, our strategy is to, we got an an exam, we've got things organized. So, it's a a virtual exam, and uh, they have to watch our videos. We have about 40 videos, um, and they have to answer questions, and then they get a certificate. And uh, basically, that's uh, what we're going to be doing to, to help the field.
0: Awesome. Well, Dr. Thatcher, if people are uh, were interested you know, in, in any of the sort of stuff that we discussed, where would be the uh, best place or places for them to visit? What sort of resources would you direct them towards?
1: Just go to www.appliedneuroscience.com and will get you started. And you can, there's a whole bunch of submenus, there's scientific literature, there's places to order, but there's also uh, ways to get in contact with our staff that will do mentoring and explain things and teach people and uh, we have four full-time people myself included uh, that uh, help educate get people going you know, to uh, so that's the best we also have neural link a that's our new product that's on a smartphone where people can uh, they can link the symptoms, the severity of the symptoms by self-report to the h- hubs in the brain. It's a free app, it's Android and iPhone, and then they send that information to the clinician. So the clinician can see, you know, when the anxiety network is deviant from normal, we need to have a protocol, and then the clinicians have radar maps and uh, line bar, and bar graphs to show how the severity of the symptoms declines as a function of treatment.
0: So it's a combination of things that we are doing all of them. Great, well, Dr. Thatcher, it was an honor to have you on the show. You know, thank you for for all your contributions to the field. Um, and uh, you know for those listeners who enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel where Roscoe's wetsuit, and you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcast. Stitcher, and just about anywhere else you can find podcasts located. Um, Also, we're launching uh, Roscoe's Wetsuit Premium, which you can find at patreon.com slash roscoe's wetsuit. There's going to be some cool exclusive content and videos on there, Um, more to come about that uh, shortly. Uh, Dr. Thatcher, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you, Toby. It's very helpful. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely.